This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning, I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. Trina Spencer, an Associate Professor at the University of South Florida in the Department of Child and Family Studies. Trina, good morning and thank you for being on the show. Good morning. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be a guest. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. I, I One of the things I love about doing the One in 59 show um, on behalf of Anderson is that it gives me the chance to talk to to a really wide variety of people doing a hugely varied um, number of things in the field of autism. So, so it's truly my pleasure to have you on. And I also love it when my colleagues at Anderson um, meet or hear from um, from somebody that they feel would be a good guest on on the show. And that's what happened. That's what brought you here today was Dr. Tina yeah. Covington, our chief operating officer at Anderson, heard you present and saw you present at an ABAI conference which is applied, is it, what does ABAI stand for? Association for Behavior Analysis International. Okay, thank you. Uh, so she saw you present, um, and I remember her telling me after she came back from that event that she thought you were just, you know, you were a great speaker, but also that what you were talking about was really interesting to her, and she thought it would be interesting to our listeners. So today, I'm hoping that you can start with a little background about yourself, both educationally and also professionally, and then we can get into storytelling intervention, which I think should be a great thing to discuss. So why don't you give you give us a little bit of background on, on who you are? Okay, sure. So I started out becoming interested in applied behavior analysis as an undergraduate student a long time ago in the 90s, actually early 90s. And it was one of those things that I kind of self-studied because there weren't programs in behavior analysis or master's programs in behavior analysis available at the time. And, um, you know, I just fell in love with it. I was really kind of a sciencey geek, but loved people. I'm too social to be stuck in a lab. Uh, but I really, I really love the analytical side of the science. And when I met behavior analysis, it was just like the perfect fit for me. It <laughs> gave me the social, you know, interactions with people and children, and but really the the analytical um, kind of rigidity of scientific principles that I, I probably needed to guide myself and in, in my life and in my career. I ended up in a master's program for school psychology, and then did an internship internship where I was able to get some supervision because the uh, behavior analysis certification board had just come onto the scene at the time and I wanted to be a board certified behavior analyst even though at the time there were really no jobs that were hiring those people. It was more just for my own satisfaction that I had a sense of uh, quality. Of course, now the behavior analysis uh, certification is very highly regarded and necessary in many cases to bill for services for children with autism. But at the time, it it was not the thing. But it was kind of the extra credential that I got. Um, In my internship for school psychology, I continued to work as a behavior analyst, and I kind of melded that. I did a lot of work with parents and families of children with developmental disabilities and, you know, primarily autism. After 
many years doing that kind of work, I decided that I really had some, you know, a strong desire to solve bigger problems or to make a larger contribution. And one of the things that I kept running up against in my applied work that I struggled to solve was reading comprehension. Hmm. Many of the children with autism were really good at decoding and, you know, word attack and recognizing the words on the page. But when I would ask them to tell me what they read or ask uh, questions about the story they were unable to answer. And that was, that was kind of, it was, it was such a problem that it vexed me for years and I wanted to solve it Mm -hmm. and I couldn't solve it with a given, given the literature that was available at the time. So that's how I went back and got my PhD. And I, I did a program that was very interdisciplinary. It's called disability, disability disciplines. So I got training in language, in I already had done the behavior analysis, so I didn't really need more training in that, but it was mostly special education, rehabilitation, speech-language pathology kind of mix. Can I, um, can I just interrupt you for a second, yeah. Trina? I just want to paint a picture here. So you're, you're doing this. You're, you've, you've identified a bigger problem. I love how you said you wanted to solve bigger problems. I think that's how you know, things really progress, which is, which is mm-hmm. so great that you identified that. And the reading comprehension thing, being a parent, Having been a former teacher, I, I, you know, I think sometimes it's it's unfortunate that people don't always identify that reading comprehension is an extraordinarily important part, a skill associated with reading that can be overlooked mm-hmm. if all you're focusing on is can they get through the book, can they get through the page. So I love that. Were you alone? Like, were, were, did you have a even a small group of a peer group of people who were also interested in looking at this um, in this area at the time? Uh, yeah. Probably. Probably not. I guess I, you know what, the people that were interested in this were not behavior analysts. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. And it, that probably contributes to why I can, you know, f- I navigate other disciplines so well is because I actually, the people that shared these um, concerns and wanted to solve this problem or even recognize it was actually the speech language pathologist. Okay. Right? Yeah. And so when I went back to school, those are those are the people, those were the collaborators that I had because they could help they could help me understand this phenomenon, and I could help them, you know, yeah. solve it. Right? So yeah. So let me ask yeah. you. I'm sorry. I, I I'm gonna. I promise I'll let you get to the rest of it because no, I know okay. there's. But this is this is interesting to me. So so because over the years that I've um, spent at Anderson, which is where I've done the vast majority of my learning about autism and specifically about applied behavior analysis, one of the things that I remember is that ABA itself has had some, you know, various, at various times there's been controversy and questions mm-hmm. about things like, is ABA all about, quote, discrete trial, which is that part of ABA instruction where you're kind of re- re- repeatedly and sometimes very quickly teaching a rote skill. So mm-hmm. so you're here you are, you've studied behavior analysis, you've kind of experienced it, lived it, you love it, you're passionate about it. But I'm not passionate about discrete trials. Good. Okay. So good that you (laughs) clarified that. But I guess my question is, when you started to look at reading comprehension, was there any, or do you think that that would have been looked at in a, in a negative light from somebody who may maybe considered themselves? um, I remember there being language like a purist, a pure ABA model, which at some points in history has included and even had a heavy focus on discrete trial learning. So like, how does that all, is it, is it connected? The idea of missing comprehension because you're so focused on the student saying or pronouncing or or even uh-huh. writing the word down 
Yeah. Okay. That is a fascinating question. (laughs) It is a fascinating question because I actually think it's the opposite. A radical behaviorist would say that our principles apply to any behavior, right? And reading comprehension and the production of what of would fall under our purview. So a purist would actually give us our broadest application. And unfortunately, those people who talk about ABA as being discrete trial treatment for children with autism, they're the ones who are not purists. They are methodological and they are prescriptive. And so, and in fact, they're not using everything that offer, right? And Mm -hmm. so it's just a narrow little sliver of behavior analysis is. Applied behavior analysis is a set of principles and it's a science that applies to any socially significant behavior, and reading comprehension falls squarely in that. You people who have expertise in those areas, that's, that's because our training programs currently, and the way it has evolved because of the BACB and licensure and insurance payment, it's, there's a limited time to get, ex, get training, mm-hmm. right? And so they limit it on they limit it to the experiences. Unfortunately, they limit it to the experiences that are going to train them to make money, right, mm. and to deliver discrete trials or some variation of that, maybe, you know, play-based or natural environment teaching or something like that. But their, but their training and their practical experiences become limited. And that is actually the opposite of what I would like to promote, which is these principles apply everywhere. Right. And so having other training area or, you know, even in business or, you know, in education like reading comprehension or in social skills or whatever it is, is actually going to help people apply the principles more broadly, you know, create more well-rounded individuals when, when, we, when we are treating children with autism. I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that, and I agree with you. Um, I have limited, much far more limited knowledge than you do behavior analysis. But I, what I do um, know, actually, from from working where I work, is that, and from some reading that I've done, has has at times experienced an identity crisis to some degree, or a perception crisis, maybe, where I always appreciate taking the time and hearing from experts uh, about the fact that it really does have broad implications. And that was the original intent and, and continues mm-hmm. to be the intent of of the use of those principles and, and laws. So mm-hmm. it's I, I don't have a solution on it. You know, we don't have to take it too much further, mm-hmm. but I just find it interesting. And I appreciate your answer and give us your thoughts on that because I would think right. well, that it, it, you know, it, it may have um, be a point of confusion for some. Oh, absolutely. Eliza, I, I absolutely agree with you. And it's not so much that is new, it's that the profession of being a behavior analyst. Mm-hmm. And when we have a new young profession, there are growing pains. I mean, the board is only 19 years old, right? Right, And that is really young. And then our colleagues are professionals that their organizations have been in place and their certifications have been in place for, you know, 60 years, mm-hmm. right? That's totally different profession, the identity crisis that you say. And I'm not so sure that it's an identity crisis as it's an identity that's still evolving yeah. from a, a from a professional perspective, right? Well, what does it mean to be a BCBA? Mm-hmm. Uh, once upon a time, somebody said to me and raised their hands and quote, you actually do ABA. <laughs> but that's, that's what I'm talking about. It's really like a, pu- a public image yeah. or, you know, generally speaking, behavior analysts are, that's not their strengths. They're strong scientists, right? Yeah, right. And so when it comes to like being clear, public or to other people about what applied behavior analysis is, I, you know, it's kind of an area of weakness. So, you know, we really, we really could do a better job <laughs> of 
helping people understand that it's a science just like, you know, it's like it's applied behavior analysis, though, away from clinicians, psychologists, and the rest of the world. It's like taking math away from engineers, you know? Right. And and that's that's the core. You have mathematics and physics right. just like analysis. So ABA is better described and characterized as a, as a science than it is a profession, yet we have a behavior analysis as a profession emerging in our system. And that's related to autism treatment. Yeah. Very interesting, very interesting perspective. And uh, um, we do have to take a short break, but we'll talk more about this. And I also want to take a deeper dive into your particular work as it relates to storytelling intervention. Um, So this is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'll be right back. Have you driven by Anderson Center for Autism? Have you ever wondered what we're all about? Well, we're a state-of-the-art educational program. We're a nurturing home away from home. We're a community resource. We're a training center for people from all corners of the globe. We're a deeply devoted family of professionals who utilize evidence-based practices to optimize the quality of life for people with autism. And we're here for you. Call us today at 845-889-4034 or visit us online at andersoncenterforautism.org to learn more. Welcome back to 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and with me today is Dr. Trina Spencer from the University of South Florida. Trina, I really loved the first part of our discussion. Um, I think it took us to a really interesting place, which is, you know, I just want to repeat something that really stands out for me, which is the difference between looking at uh, applied behavior analysis as a science versus looking at it as a profession. And I agree that, that as again, with, the, with what you said about the the board being so young, um, especially in relation to the other sciences, that when we refer to ABA as a profession, that will likely shift and grow and evolve over the coming years. So so going back to looking at it as a science and how you sort of fell in love with it, as you said before, what are you doing today as it relates to storytelling intervention and, and what are you finding in terms of that big problem you were looking to solve about mm-hmm. uh, reading comprehension um, skills for uh, children with autism? Okay. All right. Excellent. So when I did go back to get my PhD, I walked in to my program wanting to solve this problem, but I didn't really understand the problem itself. I didn't know the cause of the problem. Why weren't these children able to comprehend what they read? Um, I actually met, had a good colleague in my PhD program, and we're still friends and colleagues today, is Dr. Doug Peterson, and he's a speech-language pathologist. And he spent time with me unpacking this problem and discovered that we were interested in the same thing. And what I learned from him and what I learned from, you know, really diving deep into the literature was the reason why these children were struggling was because they lacked academic language skills. And academic language is the foundation for reading comprehension. To comprehend what you read, you have to understand text structures, like discourse structures, narrative, and informational. You have to have strong vocabulary skills, and you have to be able to make inferences and understand syntax, complex syntax, and grammar. And those are all language skills. Well, guess what? Behavior analysts don't really get training in language and understanding all of those things I just described. So I had to spend time understanding that in order to solve it. And when I was learning about language, I came across, and also I also attribute this to my interactions with Doug, that he, he exposed me to storytelling and the, the venue of storytelling for teaching language. And 
oh my goodness, the first time we did a study together, we did this narrative intervention, it was like a perfect symphony because he contributed what to teach, right? All the, you know, discourse structures, the vocabulary, the syntax that I didn't know anything about. And behavior analysis, or me, I contributed how to teach it well. And that's really what applied behavior analysis is. It's the science of learning and behavior. So we're master designers of instruction, Mm -hmm. or at least we should be. So together, we created a, a storytelling intervention and have, for the last 10, no, we're at 13 years, I think, 13 years now, he and I have been using storytelling to teach language skills to a, a wide variety of children, including children with autism. And we have been able to show that by teaching this narrative language or academic language within the context of storytelling, we can get to these high-level repertoires that are needed for reading comprehension. So in multiple, multiple of our studies, we can show a direct relationship to reading comprehension as a result of building these storytelling skills, right? But it's, these are complicated skills. It's not like these are little discrete things. You have to put them all together right, the text structures, the vocabulary, syntax, the inferencing, all of those things have to be wound up together and taught in a, in a generative manner, right? Okay. And this, yeah, do you want to ask about that? Yeah, no, I, I just want to, I want to I start to paint the picture a little bit for, for myself and for our listeners. So, so are these stories that, that are, um, are they based in, in stories that are sort of well-known in our society? Or are these brand new stories? Mm-hmm. Are they, are characters yeah. developed in a very particular way? Are they short? Are they yeah. long? Of What age are you talking about in terms of children okay. you're working yeah. with? Sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> More those, of the application, the practice. It's funny because like, to me it's like, yeah, of course we use stories. So actually I write the stories for ah. instructional purposes. Okay. And I write them according to development. So... For example, let's say I have a four- or five-year-old. I'm going to create a story that's about 70 words long, Mm -hmm. and that's because that's what would be appropriate for that child to tell and to understand, okay? Mm -hmm. And we would... I would design the story with specific story structures, so character, setting, problem, feeling, action, ending, and feeling, something like that. Hmm. Those are the components the story would have. I would be very particular on the linguistic complexity, how long the sentences are, whether I'm including relative clauses or subordinate clauses, those kinds of things, and vocabulary, very specific vocabulary. You can't have them too high or too low, you're trying to teach something. And so they're carefully constructed stories so that we can um, use them for instructional purposes. Now, Doug and I have created and written thousands of stories. Um, We use them for assessment, we use them for interventions, and they can go for very, be appropriate with kids who have very little language skills and very young to older children, including we also do work with informational discourses as well, but we we build a strong narrative foundation first. And we would, we have many levels of stories. So for an older child, it might have 135 words and the structures are longer, the sentences are longer, they're more vocabulary. So we create them for development and that's very, and our characters are, Average children, the themes in the stories are personally relevant so that there are like socially appropriate, pro-social kind of experiences. So stories are about things that children experience, like 
I can't find something. Somebody's playing with a toy that I want. I didn't get invited to a birthday party, mm. something like that. So that we are teaching kind of like a social story, but it's not a social story as in the copyrighted version of social stories. Right, right. right. social component. Yeah. And they learn dialogue. They learn what to say. And then once we have the stories, then we take them through a set of procedures that helps them build this repertoire of storytelling, not memorizing a story. And that's really important because if we teach them how to memorize this story and we read and have them practice retelling the same story, then they've only learned that story. They haven't learned the structure of stories and the structure of language within stories. Right. You're you're separating, you're making a, a significant difference between or noting a significant difference between the ability to memorize and retell, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is very different than the, I would call it an art, but also there is a huge skill involved in actually being able to tell a story. Many of us can probably relate to that. If you think, you know, I'm, it's bringing me back to when I was a child and there are adults in your life who, you know, all take turns putting you, putting you to bed when you're little. little. Some mm-hmm. are better storytellers than others. Um, some are really mm-hmm. engaged some not so much there's um there's podcasts and things that you can you can listen to um and it's become a huge thing just listening to people tell stories who are good at telling stories um and it can be very similar information but a lot of it is the delivery um so i love i love that distinction Mm -hmm. it also seems to me that there would be a quality of life um component Mm -hmm. to the ability to tell a good story which has obvious social um impact Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. versus what especially people with autism often are uh, there's a, there's there can be an expectation false as it might be sometimes but there can be an expectation that people with autism um, only want to sort of repeat 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 and retell mm-hmm. um, to the point where it's not interesting to anybody else which right. is certainly not true for everybody but I, I think that in, that distinction is important mm-hmm. so we're, we're close to being out of time unfortunately we have three minutes left I want can you tell us whether any of this it has any of your work seeped into general education or or sort of mm-hmm. general practicability um, or yeah. are you still is, is this still something that you're collecting uh, data on and or is it both at this point like what are what's the future for this yeah yeah well definitely we we are impacting general education and honestly this is huge huge validation for me because that's actually where it starts you know our kids are gen ed students first and Actually, more than just children with autism need this academic language promotion. So English language learners, kids from low SES backgrounds, they have the same type of language difficulties and need storytelling. So my colleague and I started a small little company so that we could publish our storytelling curriculum. It's called Story Champs. And, you know, we have one employee and the two of us who kind of like keep the research and make sure that the the storytelling intervention is always, you know, revised according to research and aligns with the evidence base. It's a really small company, but it seems to do well. And there are teachers and speech-language pathologists and reading specialists who use our curriculum in kindergarten, first grade, and maybe second and third, maybe preschool as well. Depends on where, where they are and how their school system is working. The nice thing about our curriculum is it's a multi-tiered, so it works in large groups like a whole class as well as small groups for children who need a little bit more, and then one-on-one if they need it for children with more significant disabilities. So it's very flexible and versatile. And then Doug and I continue to do research, but we're doing research on like the next generation of storytelling-based academic language interventions. So the things that we're doing research on are not 
commercialized, they're not available for public use. But when we're done with these research, with these studies, and the program is, you know, if we have good evidence to support it, eventually we'll let the company release it to the public. So that's kind of, we work on the R&D and then the company can disseminate. Yeah. That's great. So let's repeat that story champs. Is there a website that that would take you to if you, if you search that? Absolutely. It's uh, languagedynamicsgroup.com. Languagedynamicsgroup.com, and it's Story Champs with uh, Dr. Trina Spencer. And um, this is really fascinating to me. I, I think just as a parting comment, I'll say that I think in this day and age where there's, you know, so many ways to get information and to hear and to read about history, and there's the occasional book people still read and, you know, newspapers, but also all the technology. Um, part of what you're talking about brings me back to something that I hope we never lose, you know, in the world itself, which is storytelling as a way of keeping history alive and keeping, Mm -hmm. um, keeping that, you know, if you, if you, you know, just take a moment and remember that before there was the written word, um, Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly well before all the, the devices that we use to, to get immediate access to whatever we feel like Mm -hmm. we want to read right now, there were people telling you about your history and your family history. And, Mm -hmm. um, I think there's no reason why children, even, you know, challenged by any developmental disability or any learning disability should not have the same opportunity to learn that art. So I love this. I think what you're doing is fabulous. Please check Thank out you. Story Champs. Um, language, what did you say? Language Dynamics? LanguageDynamicsGroup.com. LanguageDynamicsGroup.com. And best of luck with everything you're doing in the future, Trina. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Eliza. It was great. All right. This is One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski. And remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week. 